It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It really was, in the end, an open and shut case. And as somebody put it, the star witness was the nine and a half minute video. That's why Derek Chauvin was convicted yesterday in the murder of George Floyd. Now, you have a number of other extraordinary things that happened that played out on national television and on streaming services, which is the most startling thing, given uh, the history of these racial police cases in America, is that the other police officers, the supervisors, the bosses of Derek Chauvin, all testified that he had done something wrong, that he didn't follow procedures, that he'd use excessive force. Usually there's a closing of ranks in these cases. That did not happen here. And then you had the bystanders, uh, these people who just happened to be standing outside of Cup Foods in Minneapolis, who witnessed, who uh, described what they saw. And in the case of 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, this 17-year-old girl really changed history because she was not intimidated by what was going on right across the street. She took out her phone and she recorded the video that really made this an open and shut case. Beyond the body cam footage and other video, this was the key thing was Darnella Frazier. You know, we live in an era now where anybody can record anything because everybody's walking around with these smartphones. If there was no cell phone footage, do you think Derek Chauvin would have been convicted yesterday? Do you even think he would have been tried? I want to read to you the press release the Minneapolis Police Department put out after George Floyd's death. Remember, nobody ever heard of this guy. It was just a local crime. And the release said, it was 200 words, a man had died, didn't even name George Floyd. A man had died, said the police department, after, quote, a medical incident during a police interaction. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. And it stressed that no weapons were used. That press release was a lie, an absolute friggin' lie. Nothing about, you know, uh, somebody, an officer's knee on the neck of George Floyd. Nothing about the way in which the police were responsible. No, it's just some guy. We're not even going to bother to name him. He died, medical incident during a police interaction. And if there hadn't been the video, would this ever become national news? Would it ever be even a big, big news in the Minneapolis Star Tribune? That's how these videos changed the nature of policing. Now, we'll have a lot more broader points I want to make. In fact, uh, shortly after I sat down behind the microphone, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, announced that the Justice Department is going to conduct a civil investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department to see if there's a pattern and practice, that's a legal term, of excessive force. And what this means is if, if DOJ finds that it's not just the George Floyd case, that it's other cases, he mentioned including during protests, whether there's excessive force. And I talked uh, earlier uh, in the week about uh, the uh, roughing up of journalists and arresting journalists who were just there covering these protests. So if they find, if DOJ finds that this is a pattern, then what usually happens is the police department has to enter into an agreement to reform certain practices uh, to prevent this from happening again, to break the pattern. Um, I got to say, there's been very, very, very positive coverage of the verdict 
and that's understandable. There was a national sigh of relief when this was read out. Chauvin was unemotional. There he was. He was let off in handcuffs. He was taken into custody. He was not allowed to go back out on bail. Um, and I can totally understand that because, the, you know, the, the city, the metropolitan area was gripped. Uh, cities across the country were on edge. Uh, what if there had been a mistrial? What if, if by some fluke he had been acquitted? Would there be more rioting, violent demonstrations, businesses being attacked? Uh, this was a genuine fear. And so, of course, there was a sense of relief. But at the same time, and I understand the crowd outside was cheering. You know, this was a sense, and we've seen the Floyd family be interviewed several times now, a sense that justice has been done in this case. But somehow that morphed into a celebration. And that bothered me. Because as President Biden noted, and I'll get to his remarks in a few moments, um, nothing can bring back George Floyd a guy who did not deserve to die, a guy who kept saying, I can't breathe, a guy who was pleading for his life. Um, and while I don't really have much sympathy after repeatedly watching the nine minutes and 29 seconds, uh, you know, a police officer is going to jail probably for the rest of his life. Sentencing is in about eight weeks, Derek Chauvin. Um, but I don't, I understand as a historical event it is, uh, depending on your point of view, an extremely significant event because it, 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 it doesn't mean, I want to say this right up front, it does not mean that the majority of police officers in this country who risk their lives every day to keep us safe are guilty of racism. It means that certain officers and perhaps certain departments have a tendency to employ officers who use excessive force, and it just, you know, it is impossible to imagine that if George Floyd was some white guy, that he would be dead today. I'm sorry, there's just been too many of these cases, including Dante Wright in the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center. Um, yes, he, he um, initially did not cooperate, and yes, there was a warrant out for his participation in armed robbery, but he was executed by the officer who used the gun instead of the taser and later claimed it was a mistake. So a lot of the coverage here is now turning to the question of what happens now? What happens next? Is this just a rare instance of justice being done? Or is this a turning point in American history? So New York Times story says, for many black Americans, real change feels elusive, particularly given how relentlessly the killing of black men by police has continued. There are also signs of a backlash legislation would that would reduce voting access, protect the police, and effectively criminalize public protests has sprung up in Republican-controlled state legislatures. Now, the Times piece says in the months after Floyd's death, some change has been concrete. Scores of policing reform laws were introduced at the state level, but still no action at the national level. As Biden said in his uh, speech last night, he made a plea to pass for Congress to pass the legislation already passed by the House, the Democratic-controlled House, but stalled in the Senate uh, for national policing reforms. I'll get to that in a minute as well. Um, even the backlash was different since the Times' racist statements by a dozen of public officials from mayors to fire chiefs relating to Floyd's death, perhaps tolerated before, cost them their jobs and sent others to anti-racism training. Um, 
The New York Times poll of registered voters back in June showed that more than one in 10 had attended protests. And at that time, even Republican politicians in Washington were voicing support for police reform. But then there was this shift, and this is what happened. There were the demonstrations across the country. There were the riots across the country. I was very glad that in his speech last night, the president said, violence uh, by those who pretend to be, these are not his exact words, interested in social justice is absolutely unacceptable. Because I think that moved public opinion. There was enormous sympathy for the idea that this could not stand, that America was not this country. And then you had the agitators and the looters and the rioters in Portland, in Seattle, in many cities across the country. Uh, these mobs began setting police cars on fire, looting stores, smashing windows, doing things that the Floyd family were pleading with them not to do. And that moved public opinion. Uh, it had President Trump and Republicans uh, emphasizing you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the violence that we saw there, which to some extent began to overshadow or at least compete with the violence of the Minneapolis the Police Department when it came to George Floyd. Um, so here's Biden last night. Very wisely, he let Kamala Harris speak first. So we have the first vice president in, the his, in American history. And she talked about how we, meaning her and, and other African Americans or people uh, whose skin color is black, uh, had been fighting for this for decades since the uh, civil rights demonstrations of the 1960s, um, which led to the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act and, and, and other legislation um, you know, during the Martin Luther King era. And then she said, this is not just a problem for people of color. This is a problem for every American. So she was talking about systemic racism. Then uh, the president uh, followed her. Uh, he said this was a giant step forward in the march toward justice in America. But he also called the jury's decision much too rare uh, in terms of black Americans who, you know, it, it's just, it, it just is heartbreaking and tragic how these routine traffic stops can, in, in a heartbeat, can escalate into something where somebody ends up dead or injured or shot. And, and you know, it's one thing in cases where there's a gray area. You know, please stop somebody or the guy has a weapon, or there's a struggle, or he's running away. That's very different than George Floyd, who whatever initial resistance he might have put up, was totally subdued. He's on the ground, on his stomach, pleading for his life, and yet a knee on the neck for all that time, as he says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, so what else did Biden say? Um, Biden said that this was a wake-up call for the United States, um, and this was the same president who, in my view, made a very serious misstep a day earlier by saying, I'm praying for the right verdict. Because at that point, even though the jury was sequestered, as he pointed out, I don't think a president should weigh in. But president and a vice president can weigh in after a jury has spoken. And look, it took this jury the equivalent of about one day of deliberations uh, to reach the verdict. Why was that? The reason is it was crystal clear. There was so much evidence. You know, the defense tried to put on, well, he might have died of fentanyl, he might have died of drugs, might have been something else. It wasn't something else. We all saw it. Everybody in America saw it. So there wasn't even any, and some people were saying, well, this might hurt the appeal because the jury seemed to have made up his mind. Was there prejudicial publicity? There wasn't even any, uh, you know, notes to the judge. Could we clarify this legal or that legal standard? This was a racially diverse jury of 12 men and women 
that looked at the evidence and believed the prosecution that Derek Chauvin was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, dumb comment after the verdict uh, had to go to Nancy Pelosi. She was at an event with the Congressional Black Caucus, and she said, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How heartbreaking was that? Okay, he didn't intentionally sacrifice his life for injustice. He was killed by a police officer, according to a jury. Uh, and what, I mean, I, I know what she was, Pelosi was trying to say, uh, you know, and she later put out a tweet, putting it in much more elegant terms. And she was trying to say that this is a turning point and because, he, because he, he's dead, that provided a, an example for the rest of the country to wake up to um, police injustice toward African-Americans. But you don't say thank you, not when the family is grieving. But the family, I think, obviously has every right to celebrate. Okay, here's a column in the Washington Post by uh, Gene Robinson, um, longtime African-American reporter, Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. He says, it shouldn't have been an open question whether a police officer could kneel on a man's neck for more than nine minutes, snuffing out his life with complete or even partial impunity. We shouldn't have had to hold our collective breath from the moment it was announced there was a verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. This shouldn't feel so much like a victory, Gene says, but it does. The jurors in Chauvin's trial trusted their eyes and ears. They saw the video of George Floyd pinned to the hard pavement. They heard him plead again and again that he couldn't breathe, and they held Chauvin fully accountable. They saw George Perry Floyd Jr. fully as a human being. And then he goes into a litany of other people, Eric Gardner, for example, uh, the guy who was killed by police in a chokehold over a, uh, you know, for selling loose cigarettes. Um, and um, a very different point of view expressed on Fox News by Laura Ingram. She took a lot of exception, vigorous exception, to what Biden and Harris said about systemic racism in this country. She called it the big lie. Um, Laura Ingram uh, played their comments and said, that's the big lie, systemic racism. She said liberals see George Floyd as, quote, a stepping stone to tearing down America. She said they want to reprogram all of America to believe that justice isn't served when just one individual pays for criminal wrongdoing. For them, punishment has to be wide-ranging and never-ending. She went on to say the fact of the matter is we live in a great country with overwhelmingly charitable good people. Acts of depravity and racism do not define us, and we despise it collectively. We want the law applied equally and fairly across the board, which is what our Constitution requires. When we see innocent American brutalized, we're disgusted and we pray for justice. So that, I think, is where the debate is heading, whether you agree with Laura or not, whether you agree with Gene Robertson or not. And then you had other uh, very liberal commentators, many of them African-Americans, like Jason Johnson on MSNBC, who came out and said, this is nothing. This is a blip. Uh, we won't, you know, justice won't be served until the systemic racism against the black Americans um, is extinguished. And I thought they made too little, too little of this jury's verdict. Um, but that's where the debate is headed now. You know, uh, are, are the people who are celebrating or at least pleased by the fact that Derek Chauvin, barring a reversal on appeal, is going to jail for a very long time, are they um, indicting the entire law enforcement apparatus? Well, certainly Merrick Garland thinks, at least in Minneapolis, this is, is worth a civil lawsuit. Or, you know, I think what happens is because they're really, you didn't see 
any conservatives that I'm aware of go on television and say, you know what, Derek Chauvin, he's being railroaded. He really wasn't guilty of anything. This was reasonable. And nobody's defending the guy. But on cable news, in the media, in politics, there has to be something to argue about. That's the way our system is structured. So now we're going to argue about whether this was an aberration, whether this was out of the ordinary, or whether the litany of African-Americans, sometimes in very disputed circumstances, and sometimes the police, you've got to give them the leeway to make a split-second judgment, even if that judgment turns out to be wrong, when they are in a life-threatening situation. But that was not the case with George Floyd. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, finally, uh, I don't understand why MSNBC continues to allow the Reverend Al Sharpton, who I have known and covered for a very long time, to be both participant and commentator in these racially charged cases. I mean, uh, Sharpton has got a weekend show on MSNBC. You know, he's on the air, on the air, on the air, talking about this case, talking about this case. I talked about it yesterday. And then when the verdict is is delivered, you know, he reverts to the role of he is an advi- he was the chief advisor to um, the Floyd family. And he appears at a press conference with the family and he talks and he orchestrates the press conference. Jesse Jackson shows up and he's a full-fledged participant uh, with the uh, family's lawyer and with the family themselves. And that's fine. He can say whatever he wants, but then the next morning, this morning, he's back on Morning Joe giving his view of it. You've got to pick a lane. You can't be a participant in these, these proceedings and then just say, oh, I'm just on here as a commentator. You've got to be one or the other. I can't think of any, you know, find me an example on Fox News where people said, oh, some of the Fox people are too close to President Trump. But they didn't work for the White House. They didn't, uh, I, I just think, I just think he gets a pass. Whether you agree with him or not, I don't disagree with everything he said. I disagree with a lot of what he said. I disagree with a lot of his history. I met Al Sharpton when I covered the Tawana Brawley case, the lie, the hoax put on by this teenager, which he never acknowledged was that, and was sued by uh, white police officers or detectives who he uh, unfairly implicated in what turned out to be a non-existent crime. There was no gang rape of Tawana Brawley. Anyway, Sharpton can say whatever he wants, but he's either got to be an MSNBC commentator or a spokesman for families who are in these kinds of situations. All right, let's do some other news. I didn't want to leave with anything light at the top, given the gravity of the situation. Uh, You know how we talked about in the last couple of weeks how the Biden White House never leaks? Well, that may be starting to change because here's a Washington Post story saying, President Biden overruled his top foreign policy and national security aides, including Secretary of State Tony Blinken, when he kept in place the Trump administration's record low cap on the number of refugees admitted to the U.S., according to three people familiar with the matter. And then that decision was reversed after a public outcry. The border and immigration seems to be the one issue where, the, where Biden and his team just can't seem to find their footing. Um, huge crisis at the border. That hasn't changed. And then this question about the number of legal refugees, 15,000, a very low cap set by Donald Trump. Biden um, felt like they didn't have the resources to process anymore because of the situation at the border. So according to the Post, Biden harbored, concern, Biden harbored concerns about what the sharp increase in migrants at the southern border meant for the government's capacity to handle an influx of refugees from elsewhere. According to these sources, spoke on condition of anonymity, the president was particularly frustrated by the government's struggle to deal with unaccompanied minors at the border. So the two seemingly separate issues are really tied up together. Blinken, who has spoken often of his own family's history as refugees, 
appealed personally to Biden in early March after his department submitted its decision, its its declaration to support dramatically raising the refugee cap from the Trump levels. Now, uh, because Biden flipped so quickly, uh, though Jen Psaki didn't quite want to acknowledge that, uh, they are saying that by May they will raise the cap. They won't say by how much. Um, it's a mess. But the fact that there was uh, this level, of, this high level of disagreement where the president had to rule, overrule his newly appointed secretary of state, I think is very newsworthy. And it does show you that when decisions go against somebody, then you have the leakers. They, you know, people leak in every administration. I don't think we'll ever see the level of leaking that we did in the Trump White House. But it's not like it goes extinct. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. Um, Politico has a piece saying the supply of COVID vaccines now exceeding demand in rural areas and even big cities. As states lifted all the remaining eligibility restrictions, so there are walk-in clinics, anybody who's 16 and over can even show up without an appointment. It's a jarring twist, that's for sure, after months in which there was just an absolute national hunger to get these appointments, to work the system, to sign up in 25 places because you had to be in these highly vulnerable, highly protected groups. And now that's changed. So, for example, according to Politico, in one part of Alaska, uh, EMS personnel are bringing the vaccine to any house or business with more than three people. New Orleans partnering with a bar in a shots-for-shots promotion. Why do you go get a... Shot and then you get drunk. That's interesting. North Dakota officials are piling pop-up clinics at Walmart. States like Georgia, Mississippi, and Montana are weighing what to do about a surplus vaccine that could go to waste as they face more open slots than ever before. Um, New Hampshire, North Dakota, Virginia say they have lots of open appointment slots. You know, I think it's because it was screwed up. They should have opened this to any people who needed it, who wanted it a lot earlier. So you have about 50% of the country, a little bit more, now has gotten at least one dose. And now looks like getting more of the other 50% is going to be the heavy lifting. Uh, one person re- described it as hand-to-hand combat. Um, more than 25% uh, people, according to a recent federal report in Mississippi, Montana, North Dakota, and Wyoming, expressed reservations about being vaccinated. In the largest city in Montana, in Billings, three-quarters of vaccine appointments are open. According to Senator John Tester, he says we've got to do more and use trusted members of the community to convince the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. Why does this matter? Because it's not just about them. Because the U.S. can't reach herd immunity. And if we don't get up to, what, 60, 70, 75, even 80 percent, and these variants continue to spread, it's, it's like a race against time. We have the vaccines. They work. If we could overcome this hesitation, if, we, if the states now, which seem to have enough doses that they're not all being claimed, shots for shots, whatever, if we could find a way to do that, we could beat this thing. We could beat it into submission. But if more and more and more people remain hesitant and we can't change their minds, then the vaccine might gain the upper hand. It, it just would be such a tragedy. We have the means to, by and large, vanquish COVID-19. And right now, it looks like we may or may not be able to do it. Hey, uh, George W. Bush uh, has that uh, new book of uh, his own paintings of of immigrants out, and he's out doing TV interviews. He was on the Today Show yesterday. And um, he is very concerned about the lies people spread on social media. So here's what he said on NBC. Uh, He was asked, how do you feel about Republicans who are willing to, unwilling, excuse me, 
to accept the results of the 2020 presidential election. The former president said they made him sick. Quote, what's really troubling is how much misinformation there is and the capacity of people to spread all kinds of untruth. And I don't know what we're going to do about that. I know what I am doing about it. I don't do Twitter, Facebook, or any of that stuff. So the Huffington Post takes this and decides to beat up on Bush. Well, you know, during the Bush years, there was no social media, and so Bush and his administration found plenty of ways to spread misinformation and untruths while trying to push the country into supporting their invasion of Iraq. They said Saddam Hussein had a massive stockpile of biological weapons, Western weapons of mass destruction, and on and on and on. Okay, I'm not defending uh, the Bush administration invasion of Iraq the way it was sold, the way it was sold by an administration that obviously did not have the evidence it claimed to have about Saddam Hussein. Not defending that at all. Possibly the biggest foreign policy blunder uh, in retrospect with the benefit of hindsight in the last generation at least. Maybe a couple of generations. Maybe since Vietnam. But I will say in fairness to George W. Bush that I don't believe he was deliberately lying. I think he allowed himself to be persuaded uh, by you know CIA Director George Tenet who said it was a slam dunk and on and on and on. We don't have to relitigate it. Uh, that Saddam was a threat. Saddam was a threat. Uh, Saddam was a brutal dictator. But they sold this on WMD, and there were no WMD. But I think that's very different than going out on social media and saying, hey, there was massive voter fraud, and therefore Joe Biden's not really president, and Donald Trump should still be in the White House. Maybe people have convinced themselves of that. Obviously, the former president, I'm talking here about former president 45, not former President 43, as in W, um, continues to argue that the election was stolen from him. And there are a lot of people who feel so passionately in their devotion to Donald Trump that they have adopted that as well. It's interesting that liberals would try to attack Bush over his administration. I mean, here's former president speaking out against his own party, against Republicans, and by extension Donald Trump, who believe the election was rigged. All right, finally, uh, you'll soon be able to get a haircut from Amazon. What? Jeff Bezos doesn't control enough of the commerce world. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a long story on this. and I, I guess it was put out publicly. The Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, had it as well. Here's the Post story. Amazon is opening a hair salon in London. Its latest push from online to bricks and mortar and a move that allows it to collect more real-time consumer data in the meantime real-world consumer data. The e-commerce giant is opening a tech-heavy hair salon. Why London? Like, why not do it in, I don't know, San Francisco? In partnership with a prominent UK stylist, the salon will include tablets at every chair, Amazon tablets nationally, fire, a screen to virtually try on hair colors. Okay, what will I look like if I'm this blonde or I'm this brunette or I'm this redhead? And a station to display information about products when a customer physically points at them. Amazon said in news release, the salon is open only to employees to start. Uh, But that's how they kind of figure out whether it's going to work. Close observers uh, said the company uh, could be engaging in a play to continue a foray into computer vision, a technology it already uses to track shoppers in its Amazon Go convenience store. So here you have this company that basically dominates e-commerce. 
And then Bezos says, well, you know, that's not what I want to rule the world. I want a spaceship company. And he buys Whole Foods. He also buys the Washington Post, as I mentioned. And then Whole Foods, you know, gets more digital. Uh, but still, it's recognizable as the old Whole Foods, but they've done an overhaul. And now they're opening up Amazon, uh, they're called these Go stores, where they're food stores. You go shopping, but you never have to check out because, I don't know, you get a, a chip in your brain. I'm joking there, but you get something where as you go through the store and put things in your cart, it's automatically billed to your Amazon Prime account. Uh, and now, haircuts? Seriously? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I want Amazon to cut my hair. Not that anybody's offering. But... Um, it is interesting. I mean, it does show you that for all of the stuff that we all order online now, if you don't order from Amazon, you're from Walmart or whatever. Um, there's still this, this the, the old-fashioned thing we call stores are not going away. And so if they're not going away, and you've already kind of built this online empire, this digital empire, I guess you want a piece of the brick and mortar stuff. I mean, the irony is that Amazon has put a lot of retailers out of business. Uh, I think some department stores that have gone bankrupt. The pandemic certainly hasn't helped or have closed down. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, other parts of uh, commerce, uh, people who couldn't, bookstores, independent bookstores. Originally, Amazon was just books, folks. They they beat on price and it would they'd get it to you the next day. You'd have to go to the store and a lot of wonderful bookstores, bookstores with great owners who really cared about reading and helping their customers, Unfortunately, went out of business too. They couldn't compete in the digital world. And now maybe the salons of America need to be worried. Well, I'm sure as the next couple of days unfolds, we'll be hearing a lot more about this debate, about policing, about African-Americans, about George Floyd. Uh, it is just a moment in history um, that I don't know where this goes. Uh, we'll, we'll, people have forgotten about it, but I do think it does seem like it's an inflection point. I think Kamala Harris used that phrase. And so I will use it as well. I would appreciate if you would subscribe. You can get our podcast on your Amazon device, speaking of Bezos. But it doesn't have to be. You can get it on Spotify. You can get it on Google Podcasts. You can get it on foxnewspodcast.com. You can get it at Apple iTunes. And I will see you all tomorrow with more Buzz News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.